Hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest edition of Hardwood Knox. This is Adam Frommel here with my fantastic co-host, Dan Favalli. I'm going to try to put aside my sadness over my Atlanta Hawks losing to the Detroit Pistons in overtime in a game that featured like the ugliest final two seconds of basketball this season and bring to you one of our mailbag episodes. We have a bunch of out-of-the-box questions, some, some really fun ones to dive into. But before we can get to any of that, I have to ask, Dan, how's it going? I am frazzled as ever, but in good spirits, especially after getting to catch up with you face-to-face for the first time in a couple of weeks. How are you doing? I'm good. I, uh, I was on vacation over a long weekend, and it was great to get away from everything, uh, and it's great to be back, too. We're glad to have you back. I did a solo mailbag last week. Um, we had two guests fall through. That doesn't have, well, one I asked last minute, so I can't be mad at the fell through. But I had two, two guests fall through, and that never happens. But so we're happy to have you back. Because I, when I do a solo mailbag, I get winded. My stamina is not what it used to be. <laughs> Understandably so. That's a tough, that's a tough ask, especially with like no one to bounce ideas off or to have them go first on one of the answers. It's, it's a tough one. I, res- I respect you for doing it, and I respect you for not calling out those those people who bounced by name. Uh, I can't. Anyone who agrees to come on the <laughs> podcast can catch. Obviously, um, uh, you would never do that, and nor should you. Uh, I am ready though for this mailbag. We had a lot of great questions, as per usual. Uh, we'll start with our Discord questions. Which nice little plug. Hey, join our Discord. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on Twitter. All sports sites are getting hitting, hitting, getting hit hard by traffic decline. So help us out, download a very episode, recommend us to people, uh, either by retweeting our promos or just telling people about this podcast should you listen to it. We're actually not hurting that badly. We've had a couple down episodes, though. I'm just going to attribute it to the fact that you weren't here, and that was it. I didn't even check the numbers in the last episode, though, because I wanted to be in good spirits, and Amon killed it. So I'm sure that did like at least two trillion episodes, if not a little bit more. If not more. And I think like another thing to put you in good spirits is you know, you, you, we saw in the Discord channel that one of the mailbag questions, and I don't know if you've, you've picked this one to cover or not, actually used the thermonuclear AF phrase that you've been pushing out on each episode. I that, made me, that. that made me smile. I, that makes me smile too. And I love it when people mention it. So we will get to that. But we're going to start at the top from T Bloom 117. What team do you expect to make the, make the most slash biggest roster changes this offseason? I am going to be surprised if we don't have the same answer here, but you're so low on the Hawks right now. I'm wondering if you think they should strip it down, trade Trey Young, and rebuild. I'm curious where you're going with this because I don't know that there's a super obvious answer just because player movement has been so wildly unpredictable over the last few offseasons. But like the Lakers feel like the obvious candidate just because of all the tumult that has been affecting that organization. And you know, it might have reached a point at which they're going to attach assets just to move Russell Westbrook. We've heard LeBron James trade rumors suddenly start to surface. Trade speculation, I, sh- I should say, rather than rumors. The rest of the ca- the supporting cast is just going to be ripped to shreds because it should be. It feels like anything is on the table for the Purple and Gold this offseason. So to me, they stand out as the number one choice, but I've I've given up on trying to make these predictions so early because – with, with players requesting trades, demanding trades, saying they're going to sit out with so many blockbuster moves happening all the time. It feels like any organization could go in wildly different directions at any point in time. That's a good point. Also, free agency has changed to where it's happening 
not in free agency really for the most part now. I will say though, it is the Lakers for me as well. And it's not just the Russell Westbrook element, but the roster is built like a placeholder. They have, let's just go and assume Westbrook picks up his $47.1 million player option. Controversial. I know maybe he declines it. Let's also assume that Kendrick Nunn picks up his player option after not signing or after not playing yet this season. They have five players under guaranteed contract for next year. I'm assuming they'll bring back Austin Reeves. Okay, there's six. That's six players under guaranteed contract next year. I don't think all their one-year guys are going to be back. That includes Malik Monk, who, if they don't have access to the non-taxpayers mid-level, I don't know how they keep him unless he just really wants to be there. And then you also have to cake in the Westbrook trade that they're going to make. The coaching staff wanted to get rid of him. They're going to have first-round picks to trade. And we'll actually pivot, since we're on the Lakers now, to a Twitter question in a second. But I think they're kind of the clear answer. And I look at sort of the, the rest of the league, and I know there are always teams that you can spot sort of, oh, there's definitely going to be some real blow-up happening here. I kind of feel like we're, we're light on those candidates leading into it this offseason. The Knicks are certainly one. I could see them if you told me they looked drastically different and did, made more moves than the Lakers. I wouldn't be that surprised. That's kind of like it. My sleeper answer here is the Detroit Pistons. I think that given how good Cade Cunningham has looked now that he's healthy, and we've also seen strides from Marvin Bagley, from Killian Hayes, from Sadiq Bey, they could make a move to accelerate the timeline in a way that drastically shifts the makeup of this roster. I don't think that they're going to come close to totally blowing it up, but we could feasibly see like three different starters and a host of new backups for a team that's trying to immediately push up the Eastern Conference standings. I was also going to say the Magic have that vibe a little bit just because there's so many different... They still have like Terrence Ross, maybe you look at moving him. Uh, you also have Mo Bamba entering restricted free agency, but they have so many just like guys who are worth looking at that I could see some upheaval there. I was going to reframe this though and say, who is the team, the candidate to make the most impactful move in the opposite direction where I guess it's like the biggest perspective. Who's going to sell the best perspective player this summer. Who's most likely to do that. I feel like it's still Washington either with Kristaps or Bradley Beal, because to me, that organization is, it continues to be a mess without any cohesive sense of direction. And I could see this being the offseason that, you know, it's been talked about for years, but would anyone be surprised if after making these moves at the deadline to try to continue competing in the season to try to acquire more talent, the opposite ends up happening during the offseason and Beal finally just has had enough? They are probably the correct answer. I think you can make a case. They're late. I don't want to call them lazy cases. But until I hear something different from the players that they're going to be talking about, I wouldn't select these teams. It could be Portland or New Orleans, technically, though. The dark horse answer is Utah. They lose in round one, maybe an unconvincing round two. I just feel like there's the Donovan Mitchell, the New York rumor all over again. No, no, no. If you, first of all, if you're trading Donovan Mitchell now, that you, if, if, if Danny Ainge even broaches the subject, he needs to be fired. So I'm, I'm talking. Do they decide to retool or rebuild around Donovan? Do they look at just moving Rudy? Could this be a situation where they move Mike Conley and Rudy Gobert? Their playoffs to me 
are going to be defining because either they've made it so far, and I would argue it's probably the finals is the only thing that really inoculates them against any sort of major change, or they've lost in round one or two. And I, I just feel like there's going to be noise there. And I don't think that's actually a spicy take. No, it's not. The question we have on the Lakers, though, comes from Michael, uh, opinionated MJ on Twitter. We always appreciate his questions and one of our most loyal retweeters. So thank you, Michael, as well. What will the Lakers get back in a rust deal since they've driven down his value down, has driven down his value to most teams? I also really wanted to ask this crazy left field question. Considering what's come to light with the threats to Russ's family, would it be far fetched to Russ for Russ to ask for a buyout? I just like to get out in front of this and say anyone who is threatening Russ, I didn't even know there. I could probably I had not heard that either. I had not heard or seen this. If you're threatening Russell Westbrook's family over how he's playing on the basketball court, you're a fucking loser. Just it's worse than that. Yeah, it's. I mean, that was the kind way of saying it. There's a this is a G-rated podcast, so I, I didn't want to use. I only wanted to use the word "loser," but yeah. So I, I want to know if there's anything of the end to that second part. Obviously, so by the way, it's not Russ's fault that the Lakers traded for him. It's the front offices. Correct. It's LeBron's. It's AD's fault more than it's Russell Westbrook's fault. Just to, I want to get that out of the way. I, I can't see any situation which they agree to a buyout at this point. Are we talking about like this this season or this offseason? Because this season he wouldn't even be playoff eligible if he's bought out at this stage. And I can't see that happening during the offseason because he's going to pick up his 2022-23 player option, which is for $47.1 million. And they're not going to bridge that gap in a buyout. But because it is an expiring deal, I think there is at least some chance of him being moved. But if you're the Lakers, you are not moving him to get anything back in all likelihood, you're attaching something to move him and to free up enough space on the books that you might be able to sign someone else or make a trade for a a player who fits better with the incumbent pieces. So if you're the Lakers and a a Russell Westbrook, if you're a fan of the Lakers and a Russell Westbrook trade is being seriously discussed, you're not hoping for a top prospect back in return. You're not hoping for uh, an unprotected first round pick, you're hoping that you can give up a first round pick with enough protections that it might not convey. And I, I don't think there's any way around that. I do think you probably have to g- hope for a little bit more than that in the sense you can't just move. You're, even if you traded Russ, Russell Westbrook into space, you're not going to have the cap flexibility to go out and add major significant pieces. You have to hope that you can attach enough draft equity to acquire someone. And so they can move the 2027 and 2029 first they have, and also include swaps in 2026 and 2028 this off season. We've gone back and forth a lot about how, how much value distant first round picks have. Uh, 2026 isn't that far away if we're talking after the draft. So if you can get to, I I posed this question in our discord, who's the best player they could get for Russ's expiring deal. And that's, that's what you hit perfectly. You're trading Russell Westbrook, the expiring contract not Russell Westbrook as an asset, but who is the best player you could imagine getting for Russ's expiring money and then two first plus two swaps? I I can't. (laughs) So the overwhelming answer in the Discord was something with the Pacers built around Buddy Heald and Malcolm Brogdon, which feels like the right 
at least level of return. Maybe you could. I just I can't imagine them getting back a player of Brogdon's caliber. For you're you're giving up two firsts. Oh, if you're if you're including the first as well. Yeah, but I, I think I don't think you want to do that though. You absolutely need to do that. LeBron is thirty-seven fucking years old. If you're intent on building a title contender around LeBron, still. But at some point, what do they cut their losses? I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, given how poorly this season has gone, is there any concern if you're a member of the Lakers front office that like maybe we need to stop mortgaging every single piece of the future we have for something that's just not going to work? Maybe. It would be different. It would be different if they had a reliable second piece. If Anthony Davis's injury history, history just washed away and he was on the court every night, I think you can talk yourself into doing that more freely. But when all you have is question marks, like at what point do you have to just decide like enough is enough? Like we can't set ourselves back so that we cannot possibly compete for another decade just to have a chance of being the sixth seed. If you think that way though, my guess would be that you then are talking about a Russell Westbrook buyout. I don't know that you could just move, but I think- I mean, if any organization has the financial ability to do so, it would be the Lakers. Well, they couldn't afford Alex Caruso, and they were approved for a triple P loan. So they they are they are hard up for for money. They don't have the funds. Fair enough. I but I will say I think the best case scenario you could hope for without. Well, I don't even know if it's the best case scenario. What you're describing, I feel like demands there to be the market that we just saw for the Kristaps Porzingis trade, where it's you divested a larger salary on a distressed asset into two cheaper distressed assets. And I don't know if that yep. moves out there because Russell Westbrook makes so much money. So the fact much money. An expiring contract will help though. If you're not going to go the picks and prospects route next to him, I don't know what you're doing then because you have, have LeBron. No yeah. Even if you, even if you only have him for two more years, you Maybe maybe the Lakers are just trying to be so bad that they can be the ones that draft Bronny James at number one. <laughs> the problem is, is he's ranked number 34 in his class right now. Right, right. So I don't know that you need to be number one, unless right. you're planning on having the number one pick <laughs> and then getting him in the second round. <laughs> Before we move on, though, I just I want to read one text that we just got from a friend of the podcast, Jacob Warren, who is at the, the game tonight at Ball Arena between the Denver Nuggets and the Zombie Golden State Warriors. He said, Twack scores are unimpressive tonight. Best I've seen is the Warriors' Darrell Wright. If you don't know what Twack is, I still encourage you, go to sportsmathnetwork.com, check it out. It's super fun. We haven't gotten any submissions yet. Be the person who changes that. Yeah, I'm with I'm with Adam on that one. Let's move to this next Discord question. Twack, let's twack it up, but we'll go to Discord now. From Luke J thirty seven, are there any short term buyout centers the Cavs should pick up after the Jowett Allen injury, or should they just roll with Ed Davis and play more Evan Mobley at the five? I would probably be more inclined to just stick it out right now. The Cavs have been hit so ridiculously hard by injuries throughout the second half of this season. It feels like everyone who wears that uniform is susceptible to some sort of injury. But because you're essentially playing with house money this season, you have the ability to tease out what Mobley can do in an expanded role at the five. And you're ultimately still five and a half games clear of the eight seeded Charlotte Hornets heading into games on Monday night. You do have the buffer to see what happens. So I, I don't, I don't think a move is really necessary here because he's not out for the season. 
if he, I mean, if he's not going to play again, that changes, but he, he's going to. The thing I'll also say is you have Ed Davis, Evan Mobley, Kevin Love, Dean Wade is 6'9, Larry Markinen. I just, I'm not signing another big. And especially when that big is going to be Greg Monroe, like who is, you know, who's going to be out there? The market who's fine, I guess, in twenty sixteen. Yeah, (laughs) he couldn't hang with the Bucks, who were desperate for center play. So, but no, I wouldn't sign anyone. It does. The Cavs are just. I mean, they still beat Toronto. I watched that game. That game was that that was hashtag ugly at points. And Toronto is, is officially confusing the shit out of me. They were banged up, but still, good. The Cavs are still. They've had one of the most surprising seasons, and it gets more shocking when you sort of view it against the backdrop of just all the injuries they've had, where it's not just Colin Sexton. They lost Rubio before they traded him. Karis LeVert is banged up. Darius Garland was dealing with some stuff. Evan Mobley missed some time earlier on, and now Jared Allen. It's like, when does it end for them? I mean, I know- if, you had, if you had told me that, or if I had told you that Colin Sexton and Ricky Rubio were going to play 45 combined games for the Cavs this season, heading into the year. You probably think they're what, like a 12-13 seed? I honestly am shocked that the number is that high because I know Colin Sexton barely played. So, yes, I would say that I might have had him as a 12 or 13 seed coming into the season like when, right. when they were on the roster. So, yeah, um, they've had a great year. I wouldn't want to play them in the playoffs either when you're just looking at how they still defend. Jared Allen, if they That defense having, is just yeah. a nightmare. Speaking of defense... And I caught shit for something I said about the Celtics in the last podcast, but not from JT Alexander that I know of. He asked, the Celtics' defense has been the defensive version of thermonuclear as fuck. Thermonuclear (laughs) AF. Shout out JT for using it the last couple of months. Doesn't improving offense mean this team is ready to come out of the East? Or is this question completely reactionary? I don't think it's reactionary. To me, it still doesn't feel like there's a clear-cut, overwhelming favorite to come out of the East. And I would include Boston in maybe not the, the 1A tier of contenders, but in the 1B tier, because that defense has been super legit all year. And we are now seeing what a detonation from Jason Tatum can do to the offense. Things are clicking there. It's it's starting to make more sense. The sets are smoother. The shots are falling, which was one of the issues early in the season is that the open jumpers were not finding the bottom of the net. Now that they are, even if it's just a progression to the mean, this is a really dangerous team. So I, I think if you're if you're ranking the pecking order within the East, you're, you're still looking at Philadelphia, Milwaukee, and Miami as those 1A teams. But Chicago, Boston, Toronto, Cleveland, Brooklyn, like those are the teams where I don't know that it would be super shocking if they made it out. And I'd probably have Boston at the top of that pack because I, I don't trust Brooklyn's health and availability. To me, to me, Boston is closer to moving up into that 1A tier than falling out of 1B. I think you could make a case for probably like four teams to come out of the East and the Celtics are one of them, the Brooklyn Nets are not. Yeah. I'm, out, I'm out on the Nets. It's just there's too many what ifs described to them. I do. I am concerned. I know the offense has been better. I would be curious to see whether they do have just enough off-ball shooting, functional shooting, aside from Jason Tatum, aside from Jalen Brown, to get by in certain postseason matchups. But they are, wow, from where they were just a month or two ago, their their defense has been, and the Derek White pickup just now in retrospect makes so much sense. So much more sense. 
they can defend. And they have, I don't know that you look at them. I know some people have tried to make like the Robert Williams defensive player of the year case. I don't know that I'm there yet. I feel like his role on defense, they are reliant on him, but it does feel more streamlined. They have like the deepest. My point is, I don't know that they have someone that you would consider one of the five best defenders in the Mm -hmm. league, but they have so many, not even just above average, but very impactful defenders who work well within like these different team schemes that we saw where there was a lot of switching earlier on in the year. I know they didn't work out great, but it was still, they were, they were doing okay. And now we've seen, you know, Zach Lowe and Brian Scalabrini talked about how um, they've had like Robert Williams helping away from these corners. But we've also seen, I mean, when you were looking at the way they were playing against the Nets, like they have Robert Williams is like coming out super far and calling off guys who want to get back because he wants to defend Seth Curry at points. They are so versatile on defense and they can, they can win ugly, but they can also win with haymakers. I wouldn't trust the latter as much as their defense. Like their offense, I said again, is probably just the the shooting specifically. Just in the half court, do they have enough lights out shooting? That's my biggest concern with them. But Miami, Milwaukee, Boston, and um, Philly, those are my four teams that I think are most likely to come out of the East right now. Not necessarily. I, I, I think my biggest concern about Boston not necessarily in one specific playoff series, but over the course of the run that it takes, the 16 wins that are necessary to win a title, is what happens if Tatum does go cold? Because I don't know that they have the secondary creation, the secondary playmaking to buffer against that. And he's been pretty impervious to increase defensive attention, like the the amount of tough buckets that he's generating against you know double teams coming from the weak side is just out of this world in recent weeks. But that can wear you down. And if if it does, if they're in the Eastern Conference Finals and he goes cold, where are the points coming from? I think that's my biggest concern about this team still. Which I think is fair. But yeah, I don't think that's reactionary at all. I think actually this sample has sustained long enough to where Boston, I, that might be the best way to frame it. Right now, who's more likely to come out of these, Boston or Brooklyn? I would say Boston. Boston. It's not even Absolutely real. Boston. I think I, if, if we're actually ranking... I would say Philly is number one, Milwaukee's number two, Miami's number three, Boston's number four. You have who? I'm sorry, can you run that through again? Boston's four, Miami. Philly, Milwaukee, Miami, then Boston. Do you have Philly above Milwaukee? Yes. I think I have Milwaukee above Philly. Otherwise, I might have the same order. I'm a little worried about the Milwaukee depth. Uh, I'm very worried about the Milwaukee depth, but I think I'm just like defaulting to to the source that I trust at this point, which is... All Giannis, everything. I totally get that. Strops asks, now that we have a decent sample size of this year's rookies, what are some all-time comparisons or career paths that you can see for the top five picks of the 2021 NBA draft? I don't know that I love the idea of jumping into comparisons here because each player is ultimately a unique player. And we see so much growth between year one and year two that putting them into those archetypal buckets to me makes more sense after a sophomore season. But I do think we, it's I don't think it's too early to start talking about like trajectories and what kind of accolades they're going to be competing for. I I firmly think that Evan Mobley could factor in to the best player in the league conversation Uh, four years, five years down the road, Scotty Barnes. I think we're looking at all NBA 
uh, accolades on a consistent basis if everything goes according to plan and he continues to, to, to develop on both ends of the court. Cade Cunningham has such a ridiculous feel for the game. I think he's a guy who's going to get MVP votes down the road. Uh, and then the rest of this, the top of this class, guys like Franz Wagner and Herb Jones and Io DeSumo, we're looking at a lot of guys who have have the juice to squeeze to to be able to to factor in to all-star conversations during their best seasons. I don't know if they're going to be consistent all-stars, but there's so much to like about their feel for the game at such a such an early stage in Jones's case and Desumu's case, their on-ball defense, just how how much of a pest they can already be and Jones already playing passing lanes and just being able to switch onto all sorts of matchups. Like he is legitimately in the all defensive conversation as a rookie, which doesn't happen. This draft class should generate a lot of excitement. I I do still think it's too early for the historical comps, but I don't think it's anywhere near too soon to be throwing out the all-star all NBA MVP caliber things. Yeah, and look, and even there's, I still have very high hopes for Jalen Suggs, who's had, and even Jalen Green, he's played better. I'm not, yeah, I'm not trying to disinclude dis- anyone there. There are just too many names in this class to go through. Them all. I mean, Jonathan Kaminga has looked like a stud lately. I will say, this is not a perfect way to do it, but you have Scotty Barnes and Evan Mobley specifically are each averaging above 0.1 win shares per 48 minutes. The last, the most recent rookies, I should say, to do that while playing as many minutes as those two have thus far, which is 1900 plus Uh, before these two, this season, there was Aiton in 2018, 2019 and Luca in 2018, 2019, then Ben Simmons and Jason Tatum in 2017, 2018, and then Kristaps and Carl Anthony towns in 2015, 2016. So that's most recently some pretty good company. And then before that, it didn't happen before, more recently than 2010, 2011, when we saw it from both Blake Griffin and Greg Monroe. Not perfect harbingers, but those two, you have to watch. And look, Cade Cunningham might be there if he had a better supporting cast in general or played more of this season. I do think when you look at just the five picks specifically to try and at least bring this back to Strops's range, how many of those guys, is there a chance like three of those guys have best player in the NBA ceilings when you're looking at Evan Mobley, uh, Kate Cunningham, and is that too much of a stretch for you to say, Scotty? I think Barnes? it's Are too much of a stretch. Green? I think it's too much of a stretch for anyone but Cunningham and Mobley. Like this is lofty territory that we're talking about. I, I, I would not be surprised if Barnes is, you know, on the on the periphery of a top ten player in the league conversation. Which, you know, go look at the names who are in that right now. Like that's a huge compliment. Please don't take it as anything but like ascending to that. You know, could be the unquestioned best player in the league is another level beyond that. And I just, I don't know that I see enough there. That's fair. I would say if you were looking for specific player comps, I I do see, I do get the Kevin Garnett comparisons with Evan Mobley, even though their games still feel a lot different, but I think that Mobley is probably more polished defensively than KG was coming in and KG was way more polished offensively and I don't know if Mobley ever has that sort of jumper but I totally get those Barnes it's been tougher for me to think of just someone who springs to mind when when really looking at him um and it's also I think because I'm so taken aback by some of the stuff he does on offense right now where he's like taking I don't want to call them catch and shoot twos but they're like these quick catches them turns around they're they're basically like catch and shoot twos Mm -hmm. um 
but he's been he's been fantastic. And w- w- with Cade Cunningham, he's a know. tough comp because he doesn't have like that explosive athleticism you typically see from guys putting up these kinds of numbers and filling these roles. You're talking about Cade Cunningham, yeah, yeah. He, I think, one of the things I wrote about him, he's going to dominate through comprehension and well-roundedness, maybe more so than actually dominate in any one area. Is Luca a bad comp? I don't know if it's a bad comp, but like obviously they're different body sizes and you know we don't see the same like long range step back threes with nearly as much frequency, but just in terms of how they control the game with changes of pace and with that cerebral ability. Could it be like a cross between can he be the Luka Doncic version of Mike Conley? I'm good with that. Is that just is that terrible? Is that like the worst thing you've ever heard? Should we move on to the next question? I've like heard that. way worse. Okay. That, that at least makes me feel better. Jay Dobbs 94 asks, who are some of your favorite tertiary creators on offense? Guys who don't run the show, but maybe can create a decent late shot clock opportunity with a second pick and roll or ISO. Wow, that's a great question. Um, hmm. Do you have any that immediately came to mind? It's the first time hearing the question. So, uh, yeah. So I think, I, when I looked into this, I was trying to see like if anything matched up with like my guesses. And it's funny to see when you look at like people who made a bunch of late shot clock opportunities, they don't align with really anything I would be thinking here. Jalen Brunson feels like someone uh, who fits this bill. I don't know if someone would like some would tilt him more towards number one status on this. I thought Monte Morris was a good example. Gary Trent Jr. here, even someone who might be able to give you just some even if it's not necessarily a ton of pick and roll juice, although maybe he does that, but can give you some rim pressure from scratch. Um, those are the guys that I think sprang, sprang to mind, excuse me, the most. If you're looking for like maybe an ISO or something, uh, I don't want to say that's that's way too high of a compliment for Jordan Clark, so I'm going to take that back <laughs> a little bit. But Dylan Brooks I, is the first name that came to mind for me. Now, I don't know if he's secondary or primary sometimes, but just as a guy who like in those late shot clock situations has the aggression, has the fearlessness to put the ball on the floor and just attack. You know who's, yeah, I actually would probably strongly disagree with that one. I, just, I know you don't like Dylan Brooks. That's not okay. That's not say I don't like him, but sorry. I should have said, I know you hate Dylan Brooks. The, some of the other names that I have listed that I don't know that they would be necessarily my primary ones. I have Eric Gordon. Uh, Franz Wagner is another one that I think that you consider. And then this, I think it rings hollow now because of how bad he's been lately, but Alec Burks might fall into that category. Uh, Burks also might lead the NBA in like side leaning jumpers to the right. Just if anyone cares about that, I don't know if I can look up that stat, but if, if anyone cares to, to double another, another fun, deeper cut one, Doug McDermott, like he's typically more of an off ball threat, but every once in a while you, there's a bailout possession where he can put the ball on the floor and you remember just how good a scorer he was in every situation at Creighton. It's not a feature of the Spurs offense so much as something that like sometimes happens. So to me, when I hear tertiary creator, that's more where I'm going. That feels like a, I don't know, like an anomaly of a creator. That's tertiary feels, wouldn't that be secondary to where it's semi-consistent? I don't know because like how many offenses have true tertiary creators? I do because the the offenses in the NBA now are so centric around one specific player that even some teams struggle to have a secondary creator. So the idea of having a consistent third option to me, because so much is based on drive and kick 
and pick and pop action, it's really tough to have a guy who is consistently the third ball handling option. That's kind of how I looked at it was like non Because like Jalen Brunson to me is 100% a secondary creator. I'm with you. I also think, and I think this is a compliment to diehard NBA fans and bloggers, podcasters, whatever. It feels like we cover so much of the league or consume so much of the league that there's a tendency to scale players above a level where they are, where you've watched so much of, you know, Alec Burks or even Cam Thomas or, you know, like That's a fun answer. You can Cam Thomas could be an actual answer here uh, to where you, you almost view their role as like outsized to this point. Jalen Brunson might actually be the perfect example there. Jalen Brunson is absolutely a secondary creator, but he's been so prominently featured in the Mavericks or there's been this desperate search to find Dallas's second best player that he's been scaled up there. So there are, there are probably a lot of different options. I'd be curious if the names that we churned out are on the lower end or the higher end of what most other people would say. Though so I think the highest end name that we spit out, was it Brunson? It's definitely Brunson. I think it was Brunson. Yeah, it's just interesting because when I heard that question, my, my first reaction was to to think of guys like McDermott who just aren't ball handlers, but every once in a while, they're that bailout option. I guess that would be interesting. You can also late shot clock and have a different meaning late shot right. clock, you know, missiles off the catch are, are valuable as well. Absolutely. Let's move on to uh, some Twitter questions. This one is one that I've overlooked for the past two mailbags. It was in my DMS from wall of Oz. I apologize. It took so long. Do you think the defense and dunks guard style, Gary Payton the second, Bruce Brown, for example, will catch on and we'll see more players like this integrated or will it remain a few anomalous players? Is there any other secret sauce in Gary Payton the second or Bruce Brown's game besides athleticism, b-ball IQ, and the right coach slash team to utilize them? Can some guys who the league may have passed by, like Chris Dunn or Shaq Harrison, find a fit somewhere by assuming a dunker spot offensive role? I do think we, I can see that as the natural evolution of where the league starts to go next. Because at some point, we hit this tipping point where everything is so in favor of offensive players just by design. You know, Even with the NBA changing the rules, emphasis, and the foul calling at the beginning of this season, and whether it's been followed through on as a topic for another time there's still so much of a leaning to the offensive side of the ball. So when every player almost has to be able to shoot threes, then all of a sudden you're buying yourself more leeway to have guys like Gary Payton who might not be the best shooters and might need to be put in the dunker spot on offense, but can wreak so much havoc defensively that it still makes sense to play them because ultimately you're getting the spacing from those non-traditional spots within a rotation. So Matisse Tybel, I think, is another great example of a guy who just isn't going to add much on offense, but you can play him situationally. You can play him at a more scaled-up role because you know that he's going to be an asset defensively in on- and off-ball situations more frequently than he might have been even a few years ago. Because with so many players shooting threes, taking one of those out of their rhythm matters a lot more. So I, I can totally see more and more of those players emerging down the road, not necessarily as stars, but definitely not as anomalies because it's a, it's a specific role on a team that has demonstrated value. And I don't even know that it's going to require the right coach so much as the right player 
who, as the question put it, has that combination of athleticism, basketball IQ, and defensive intensity. I also think what matters and would affect the frequency with which these players emerge is the team makeup to where do you either, are you not playing bigs, true bigs, or are your, your front court players predominantly able to space the floor in most of your lineups? Because having in for the traditionally or conventionally, you want your guards to be some of the ones who are spacing the floor or who are on the ball, both, whatever. If you don't need that from your, your centers or your, let's say your fours or whatever, and you can play these guys like bigs on offense because you have the flexibility elsewhere positionally, that would for sure, I think, enable you to even test this out. As far as guys that sprang to mind who might be able to work in this role, I didn't have anyone. I thought he doesn't fit the athleticism role, but like some smart team will give Frankie Lakina a chance in this role. Just needs to happen. I, I actually went historical with examples because I think that there are, there are some players who missed this opportunity by a decade or so. Uh, the first one that came to mind, and this is kind of a deep cut. Do you remember watching Chris Kramer at Purdue at all? No. Three-time all-defensive in the Big Ten, two-time defensive player of the year in the Big Ten, went undrafted in 2010, played for the Fort Wayne Mad Ants in the, in the then D-League, and has played for a bunch of different teams in Europe, never actually made it in the NBA, but just an absolutely hounding on-ball defender who could stay in front of any guard He's developed an offensive game overseas, but he didn't really have much of one with the Boilermakers, but he was so ridiculously suffocating that he created so many loose ball opportunities. He threw so many high-level future NBA players off their game. I think there's more of a role for a guy like that in the league now where you can buy yourself more specialty bandwidth because you have shooting from every other spot in the lineup that, you know, Steph's torturing, torching you and torturing you. Either one works. Let's put in that guy and throw him off his rhythm as best we can. It's like a souped up version of Patrick Beverly. You know, a guy who's just going to go in there and not necessarily be an instigator, but throw a guy off his game so much with the constant pressure that he can have that singular focus and not even need to contribute elsewhere except for being thrown to the dunker spot. And if they forget about him, he can finish a play around the basket. That's fair. I don't know how much that helps teams in the now, though, being able to reflect upon guys from the past that could have worked. What about? I'm just. I'm. I'm. I'm more thinking big picture. What about like an Isak Bonga? Would that be someone who could work there? Or sure. Maybe he shot the three ball way too well, at least for stretches in his career. And I guess he's played this role sometimes. But given also how sneaky of an offensive rebounder he is, a Tory Craig is he someone who has more valuable more value if you use him that way a ton? I think he's good enough on the offensive end as a, as a floor spacer that you don't need to, but he could work there. That's interesting. Oral, I wonder, I've, and I've, if they've used him like this at all, I apologize. I don't know. It's, like, does that change like Josh Akogi at all? A value like his where someone we just know can't shoot. It should. I don't know if he could fit in that role. Maybe they've used him in that. If Timberwolves fans are listening, feel free to scold me. For that I mean, one. Lou, Lou Dort, you know, he, he's shown some shooting growth, but how much more valuable is he if you pigeonhole him into a smaller offensive role where he can use his athleticism even more? Russell Westbrook. What, Russell, what about the what about the defense part? Oh yeah, that was a good point. But put Russell Westbrook in the Gary Payton the second role on offense where he's just screening and cutting and doing some stuff from the dunker spot, and that might be the most optimized version of Russell Westbrook <laughs> on offense this year. I'm not even trying to be an asshole with that. I swear. 
that was I a actually great think the, mo- the most optimized version of Russell Westbrook might just be like on on the bench. Moving on, Mark, whose Twitter handle was Jokic for Shokic. I appreciated that. Which M- which MVP candidate has the best marquee performance of the year so far? I think it's Jokic. The, the specific game is the one against the Clippers that went to overtime where he and Zubats were just trading buckets at the end. Just the clinic that he put on, not just as a scorer, but the pass that he made out of a double team across the court to Aaron Gordon just to force overtime. It was it was a, a masterpiece that showed every element of his game. He made big defensive plays on the interior, even while operating with foul trouble. He was unstoppable on the interior. He made some big threes down the stretch. He kept the Nuggets alive with his passing. So as much as every other candidate has had signature performances that really stand out, that to me was the game of the year in the NBA, as well as the performance of the year. That might have been like the play of the year to that pass specifically to Aaron Gordon. And there's, I think it's that one because that was the the Aaron Gordon pass game. That's he has, that's one of his game saving blocks this year too. Right. Because one of three, I think, right. Raptors and Warriors. I think the other two came against. If you went by, that would be my pick by the way, is that Clippers game. Regardless, if you went just by game score on stat head, I was curious to see what came up. The answer really isn't that bad. It's his most recent, explosion against the Pelicans is the highest game score among all and, his performances. And he had 30 points in the fourth quarter and overtime there with three steals, four blocks as well. It's just, he finished with 46 points, 12 rebounds, 11 assists, three steals, four blocks, shot over, shot 13 of 17 on I two. think it was, a, it was a 65.5 true shooting percentage, if I remember correctly. Uh, it. Was it, no, it had to be. What'd you say? 65.5? 65.5, I think. It had to be way higher than that. He shot 91.7% at the foul line, 60% from three, and 76.5%. It was team. not a 65.5. <laughs> I don't know where I'm getting that number from. Anyway, my whole point is so they win that game. And like, it just feels very. I saw we talked. There were people that we, there were people that talked about it on Twitter. I didn't see the game personally, but it just feels like, oh, okay, Jokic did this. That's just how it feels that he, this has just become the norm for him. So uh, I don't know if, can you think of a second player? Because I feel like all the answers kind of belong to Jokic. Is there? Yeah, any- I, I feel the same way. I think Embiid's tough because he has some massive scoring performances, but I think the constant parade to the free throw line lessens the memorability of them. And I'm not even criticizing that because if anything, I, I actually think Embiid doesn't shoot enough free throws given how he plays, it's a little bit of that Shaq effect where officials just can't call every foul against him. So I'm in no way trying to downplay his skill in getting to the free throw line, but just because so many of his points are coming at stoppages in the live action, it's hard for those to stand out quite as much. I think, I don't know if people still consider Steph one of the top five MVP candidates. I think there's still a case for him. He had that game, and it was like within the first two or three weeks of the season against the Hawks where he just went absolutely nuclear. That could be a candidate. Giannis, I, Giannis has like more- He has the 50-point game. He has the 50-point game. He has like more, the 50-point game, by the way, came against the Pacers, which is like, how like how do we describe- and Also, the fact that you couldn't remember who it was against, I think speaks to 
I was going to say not he's being a reasonable answer. He's beat up on the Lakers a couple times this yeah. season. So there's that. But I think the answer for me would definitely be Jokic, who's just had in part because they've needed him to have these moments. Otherwise they would have lost these games yep. where some of these other players are coming from better situations to where maybe they're not in those uh, even moments or just positions as often. I actually think this is a great segue to a question we had from random bystander. How much should team record impact the MVP race? That could also be sort of extrapolated to how much should supporting cast impact the MVP race? Is it here? My argument here would be, is it uh, like, who would be a good example? Like, is it Giannis's fault that even as shallow as the Bucks are, he's had a better supporting cast than Jokic in Denver? Just as I think you could argue at this point, Denver is deeper, especially given the play of their bench of late than Milwaukee. It's just that Milwaukee has two all-star caliber talents that are healthy on the roster and Denver does not. Historically, it matters a lot. You don't tend to see MVPs outside of the top three in their conference with a few notable exceptions, all of which have come in recent years. Personally, I don't think it should matter whatsoever because to me, you're judging who the most valuable player is to their team. And maybe that's a player who pushes their team from good to great, from great to best in the league. But it could also be someone who pushes their team from terrible to, to factoring into the play-in race in one of the two conferences. I just I don't think it should matter because if it does, even at the smallest level, fundamentally, you're arguing that a player is more valuable because his teammates are better. There's no way around that. You know, if you if you had Jokic put together the exact same season while playing with utter garbage around him. I'm not talking about like this diminished supporting cast that still has a number of high quality players. But like if you put him on, you know, the the Cade Cunningham-less Detroit Pistons, they're not going to be winning that many games. That doesn't change how valuable he is. It changes the perception of how valuable he is because he has worse teammates. So I I don't like the idea of saying that somebody has a better MVP case, most valuable player. And I just don't think that V is interpreted correctly on 90% of ballots. If teammates are better, how does that make them more valuable? Like you can, you, I, the only, the only reasonable argument there is there's, there's higher leverage opportunities that ultimately a game played by a bottom feeder is inherently less important than a game by a team fighting for positioning near the top of the conference. So there's something to that, like performing when stakes are higher. That argument isn't made though. It's just like, here, look at their record here. Look at where they are in the conference. And that to me just means like, Hey, let's reward this player for having, you know, lucked into being in a good situation. And also when you use the conference specifically, this is where it gets flawed with the record of the conference. Oh, the Nuggets are only sixth in the West. They are one loss behind the Milwaukee Bucks in the records column for the league and two losses behind the Sixers. And those two are the two of the top three teams in the East. That's, that's splitting already thrice split hairs there if you're ascribing that, um, ascribing so much value to team record, which is also why it's flawed. I think, I don't, I don't think you could set ever baseline criteria for the MVP award. If you want to create a minutes threshold or something, fine because it, it is inherently subjective, but we need to do a better job of, and I think we probably have, like you alluded we're to moving in recent towards years. It. Yeah, just to do a better job of, because if we're going to just best player from the best team, then like, yeah, let's, okay, who from the Suns do you want to pick? Devin Booker or Chris Paul? That would be what this award would become. 
yeah, I think that there there are some outlier seasons. Like I'm thinking like 2011 Kevin Love, where a guy is so obviously one of the best players in the league and shouldn't just be disqualified from the conversation because he has dog shit around him. Like that that's one of those seasons and win shares are an inherently flawed metric, but I really like looking at win shares relative to team wins because there are some seasons I, I don't remember exactly where Love's 2011 season with the Timberwolves fell. Like there are some like Neil Johnston seasons back in the the 1940s and 50s where he had more win shares than his team had wins. That's value. Just because he didn't win games, that's value. That would be like a Trey Young this season. Not that like to I'm equating it to let's say 2013 right. or 14 Kevin Love. Was, was my, my years were off? No, oh, my year was off then. I'm just saying that love season in Minnesota where he like broke every single... I think it was 2011-12, but... Okay, I, that's I fine. My, not my remember exactly. Off there. He, was he in Cleveland by 2013-24? No, he wasn't in Cleveland by then, was he? All right, I'm looking it up. I'm getting old. Um, it was 2011-2012 was his redonkulous season. So, yeah. tw- actually, 2013-2014 too. Oh, good. So at least I was right on one of the years. We're getting old. The next question comes from Jackal Moore. This one was an interesting question. If you could only shoot three-pointers for an entire game, one, who would be your current starting five, current NBA players only? Two, who would be the opposing team starting five, all NBA players available? Oh, I guess he meant all time there. I did. I built this as which team. Oh, we did current, yeah. We did current, and I built it. we built it as they have to defend this other team. Yes. So the way I interpreted this is when I'm building my offensive lineup, I still have to consider what they're doing on the defensive end. But then my defensive roster, the sole purpose is to defend the offensive roster. Correct. So my my offensive lineup is Steph Curry, Fred Van Vliet, Desmond Bain, Cam Johnson, and Joel Embiid. Embiid's not the most accurate three-point shooter, but just the fact that he can reasonably shoot those from the five – And then I get his defense on the other end, which is also the case for Van Fleet and Bain. You know, that that gives me a lot of defensive juice to work with. Cam Johnson fills in a lot of gaps on both ends, but all five of those guys can can rein it in from the outside. We had two overlaps. I had Steph, Tyrese Halliburton, Harrison Barnes, Cam Johnson, and PJ Tucker. And that was sort of the way you were thinking with Embiid. I was thinking with Tucker. He actually is second in the NBA in three-point percentage this year, too. He was hitting not, like 48% a few weeks ago, right? He's not hitting them off the dribble, obviously, but yeah. he can hit. He could just sprinkle those in from the corner. And it allows, you know, where Harrison Barnes or Cam Johnson is technically your three, but they're not because P.J. Tucker exists. So that was my thought. The defensive one was more challenging. Ours ended up being similar uh, when we built the lineups. You did, not, you did not build a lineup at first, or you misinterpreted it. Correct. But I, I have one now and a huge caveat here that I'm assuming health. And you'll, you'll know why that exists in a minute, because I have Matisse Tybel, who's like the most obvious inclusion imaginable on this team. Io DeSumo, Jimmy Butler, Draymond Green, and a healthy version of Anthony Davis. Just for the record, I did build my lineup first and you just stole DeSumo from me because he was on. Oh, he would have been on there anyway. Matisse Tybel was also on mine. I had Draymond Green as well, where the two we differentiated is I had Evan Mobley and Dylan Brooks. You claim I hate Dylan Brooks, but I need someone who's going to... You do. You don't have him on your offensive roster. (laughs) 
You're limiting him to one end of the court when he can do so much more. Why do you hate Dylan Brooks so much? I love his defense. I feel like there's a, he's like, a, he's, he defends with a subtle fuck you is how I would sort of describe his defense. I don't think it's that subtle. To me, it's, well, it's not like a violent fuck you is my point. To where like, a, or, a, or a ferocious, I don't want to use the word violent there, but like a Patrick Beverly, who's clearly not as good. There's like a ferocious F you. Dylan Brooks is more like an even keeled fuck you. I can, like I can get behind you, that. Fuck you is his equilibrium. I can get behind that. As a point uh, of clarification from the previous question, by the way, Kevin Love, sixth in the MVP voting in 2011-12, 11th in 2013-14. I'm actually surprised he was that close to the top That should have been a lot higher. Yeah. Uh, the final part of this past question from Jackamore, though, was what would the final score be? I don't even know how to, like... I have no idea. Would they, if we set the over-under at 190, so each team scoring 80 points, at least, or, wow. We set the over-under at 190, each team scoring 95 points. Would that be too high, too low? Because they only have one shot they can take, but it's just worth inherently more. I don't think the defensive team would score at all is the issue. Like, if if we're putting the... I mean, like, my team, Matisse Teibel, Dasumu, Jimmy Butler, Draymond Green, and Anthony Davis. Some of those guys can shoot threes. Most of them shouldn't. And we still have have good defenders from the first team. So like, what do you, you could literally just leave Matisse Tybal alone because he's not allowed to shoot except for three. So I don't think that team's scoring, but I do think the, the good offense just inherently beats bad defense beats good defense. So I think it's like 120 to like 40. So you're taking under 190. Yeah, I think so. I'll take the over because I think offense beats good defense, but I have no I, idea how we're going to test this. None of the lineups we beat. If anyone has 2K and wants to run this, <laughs> go ahead. Uh, but they can only shoot threes. How do you how do you do that? If anyone has 2K and is also a wizard like programmer <laughs> or something. Um, but also the other the defensive team doesn't only have to shoot threes, right? So I think it does. Even then, I'm going to take over. You don't have enough trust in IO. And look, you want me to trust Dylan Brooks's offensive game? Here it is, baby. Taking the, taking You've the redeemed over. yourself. <laughs> that question was interesting, though. Last couple here. Chris asked, I'm not sure how to categorize it, but the Pacers have to be having one of the worst records in close games by any NBA team in history. Would would you do a data dig on any of this? This took way too long, but I did it anyway. And I just looked at clutch performances. The Pacers have been involved in more close games, but I wanted to just make sure that there were plenty of meaningful minutes played. So in clutch games this season, I just use traditional crunch time uh, where you're within five points in the final five minutes or the differential is no more than five points on either side in the final five minutes. The Pacers are 10 and 28 this season. That's a 26.3 winning percentage. The fact that 38 of their games have gone to crunch time is probably encouraging. But if you go back 10 years, there are, these are the only teams that have had a lower winning percentage in crunch time than the Pacers this season. The 2017-2018 Mavs were 12-38, and 38, so they won 24% of those Another games. Rick Carlisle team. <laughs> what are you trying to insinuate there? That my perception of him is apparently flawed. The 2020-2021 Pistons, they were 7-25, and 21.9%. So they were better in the clutch. Than this Pacers team? No. Oh, but they were better overall in the clutch. Yes, correct. 
And also, they played fewer games than the Pacers in the in crunch times. Well, I mean, State. relative to their their typical standard of performance. That's too. what that's what I caught on to after you said that. You could argue that the Pacers are having a, a more unlucky or worse season because they played in so many more games. There was also the 2015 2016 Sixers were five and thirty, so they won fourteen point three percent of their crunch time games. What year did and, you say again? I'm sorry, five and thirty. What, what year was that though? 2015 2016. So that's process era. Yeah, I mean, you had to know one of those teams was showing up in here. And then the final team in the last decade uh, to have the lower winning percentage than the Pacers this season was the 2013-2014 Bucks, 10-30. and 30, They won 25%. So when you're looking at the number of games played that went into crunch time, the Pacers are having, whether you want to call it the worst, unluckiest, one of the two or three worst-slash-unluckiest crunch time seasons over the past decade. When Again, when you're looking at total minutes played-slash-games entering crunch time. Not great. Not great at all. Uh, to be fair, they might get a top five pick and have Tyrese Halliburton, and there's still Miles Turner, Malcolm Brogdon, Chris Duarte there, and O'Shea Brissett, one of my favorites to watch. Cooper asks, how does Herb Jones's defense stack up with the rest of the league? Uh, I do appreciate these questions that want to try and quantify where people stand on defense. I just think it's inherently difficult. There are a bunch of different stats you could look at. My favorite one, though, is when you look at how often he is defended, and I'm just taking this answer because I assume you didn't. You obviously didn't have time. Oh, to I have an up. answer. Oh, what's your answer? Go ahead. My answer is that if he is not part of the conversation for one of your all defensive slots, then you're doing it wrong. It's fair enough to frame it that way as well. He has spent over 33 percent of his time guarding the number one option on the other team. There are only two players in the league who have played at least a thousand minutes and spent more time guarding number one options than Herb Jones. Would you care to even venture guesses as to who they are? Not at all. I think you'd probably get at least one. But it's Matisse Thibel and DeAndre Hunter, who just barely cracks the minutes threshold. I, I was going to guess Matisse Thibel and DeAndre Hunter. So <laughs> I, I would have guessed Dorian Finney-Smith. I would have been wrong, but he is number four, if that's any consolation. It's not, because I, I wouldn't have been close. Uh, my favorite stat for Herb Jones's defense is the suffocation rate, which is just infinity. So that's that's pretty impressive. It's a great stat. These will be the... My, my, my follow-up question is, which sounds like a better defender, Herb Jones or Herbert Jones? Because I kind of waffle. Herb, Herb Jones sounds more like intimidating to me. Herbert Jones sounds more like he's going to try and sell you something while he's defending you. Herb Jones feels like he's really gonna like screw like screw you over. I like Herb Jones. I feel like Herb Jones sounds more like a shooter. Shooters can defend. Like Dylan Brooks. Brooks <laughs> not a shooter. Maybe between the ears, but uh Ribo Flavin asks, what is the difference between a slam and a dunk? Power. A dunk is like contact with 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 fingers at rim but a slam is like there's a defender involved there's ferocity in the play there and a dunk can so all all or is it all slams or dunks but not all dunks or slams that's what absolutely 100 so you're saying that you're you need to touch the rim for both of these a slab what deandre yeah did? like you know like the, the classic, like, my dad claims that he's dunked once in his life. And, you know, it was one of those, like, putbacks where you, like, happen to graze the rim as you're putting the ball back through the hoop. That's a dunk. 
That's not a slam. But I'm saying, so a slam couldn't be, it feels like there's more room for interpretation with the slam where it's like, who, what's the most famous, like non dunk dunk where it's like, they just threw it in. Like the Blake Griffin one, Blake Griffin over Kendrick Perkins, right? Right. Was there a DeAndre Jordan over Brandon Knight? But that's, that's a slam. That's a slam. Even if you don't touch the rim. That's a slam layup. So not all, not all, not all slams are dunks then. Because I guess you just disproved that. Yeah. That's like, why I w- to me, like, let's, if we need an official definition, a slam is when the ball travels through the hoop in a downward trajectory with ferocity and likely a defender involved. That's why we're under the NBA math umbrella folks, because we use this super technical scientific logic to, to get things done here. These are, our la- these are our last two. These are going to be our last two questions. Apologize for the people we didn't get to. Adam has the answer to this one. Who is the most average player in the league, either overall or relative to their position? That one comes from Dan. Yeah, I wanted to take a a purely numbers-based look at this. So I'm going to use NBA Math's TPA metric because by definition, zero is perfectly average because unlike VORP, unlike a lot of other metrics, we are having the baseline set not at a replacement level player, but at the league average. And there's obviously room for flaws in this because BPM and then therefore TPA are by no means perfect stats, but there are seven players this season who have exactly zero TPA on the year. So I'll I'll go through those in ascending minutes. Isaiah Jackson is number seven with 277 minutes. And actually these are, since I'm just getting back from vacation, I'm realizing that these are a little bit outdated because I have not done an update since Friday afternoon. So apologies if this has changed significantly. Nerlens Noel, number six. Dwight Howard, number five. Javante Green, number four. Joe Ingles, number three. PJ Washington, number two. And Mo Bamba, number one. I would also say that if you include the offense-defense breakdown, just not looking at guys who are really good on offense and really bad on defense or vice versa, but the guys who are at zero and are also just really close to the origin because they don't differentiate themselves on either ends of, on either end of the floor. The objective answer here is PJ Washington. Which I feel like that could also anecdotally be the answer. It, it definitely could. And um, if you remove, if you remove like, it having to be exactly at zero from the equation, then I think you allow for, you know, some other interesting answers. Um, you know, I'm lo- looking at like Quentin Grimes has been almost perfectly average according to our stat. Uh, PJ Washington's shown up again here. But that he's uh, um, So can I tell you the name that sprang to my mind first? I was trying to figure out of who would be the closest to average on both sides of the floor. Sure. Marcus Morris. That's a valid one. I thought you were going to check it against TPA. I guess that's. Oh, yeah. No, I absolutely can. That was the. That would have been my anecdotal answer when I saw PJ Washington because I ran the numbers like you did. Very close to very close to the the origin on both ends. So, yeah, that. But when I saw PJ Washington, I was like, that that sounds thinking about PJ Washington. That sounds most correct. I think uh, like Jetty Osmond's another fun answer here. Did you have an anecdotal name that sprang to mind when you first saw the question? The first one that came to mind was Dwight Howard. That is interesting. Where I think that like he's 
he's so obviously regressed from his superstardom in Orlando where he's like a perfectly functional role player who isn't a defensive stopper, isn't really much of an offensive threat, but because his role is limited in both of those areas, he doesn't really stand out negatively or positively. I almost feel like that's giving him too much credit on offense, but I, I totally get what you're saying there. And yeah, the numbers I mean, back it up. So if he's spreading to mind. Yeah. I, I, I don't know that he's like a super play. It's tough because the numbers aren't, aren't really accounting for his lack of ability to do things. It's more when he does get touches, he's been pretty average. Final question comes from hash. What's the chance of LeBron getting the scoring title for context. As we record this, Kevin Durant, who I still think will qualify for it. And Joel Embiid, are tied at 29.5 points per game. LeBron is just behind them at 29.4 points per game. Yeah, it's all about opportunity, right? So I think you can pretty reasonably take a stab at Embiid eventually. We haven't seen it yet. Eventually being able to cede a little bit more offensive responsibility to James Harden and in turn give Tobias Harris more touches to let him find a rhythm, which means that his scoring numbers might not be there. I think he's also motivated to win the scoring title, so I don't know how much of that we're going to see. LeBron feels like he could swing either way because the Lakers could just accept that they're going to be a play-in team and rest him a lot and not let him put up these 56-point performances. On the flip side, because no one else can do anything, he might have more of them. So I, 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 would, I would say that there are three or four people who have a legitimate shot. LeBron is in it. And I, I, it feels fair to put it around like 25, 30%. Uh, he has won one scoring title, right? It was yes. earlier on in his career. So he doesn't have the whole, I guess we want him to be a multi-time scoring title winner, but I also do think he cares about just getting the regular season scoring record as quickly as possible. I would probably put it at like a, I just feel like it'll be, I'm with you on Embiid. Just having Harden could drop him from the leader spot. The Nets kind of need Kevin Durant, though, to lead the league in scoring, which is a little terrifying because they have Kyrie Irving or they're supposed to have him on a regular basis. Who knows how that looks when Ben Simmons comes back? Uh, LeBron isn't going to have Anthony Davis for the foreseeable future, and he's just all everything yep. Lakers. I, I feel like I'm going to give him a 30% chance. Do you think who is so who you have Embiid as your pick to win the scoring title? I is think that- so. I think so. And I think what makes LeBron scoring so amazing is just the consistency year over year. Like he only has one scoring title and it came in 2007, 2008 when he averaged 30 points per game for the Cleveland Cavaliers. But the fact that we had to say only is telling in and of itself. And if you look at his ranks through the years after his rookie season, when he still finished 13th in the scoring race, Third, third, fourth, first, second, 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 third, fourth, third, third, fifth, eighth, third, twelfth, second. Wow. It doesn't make sense. That's that's wild. Who's it doesn't more, make sense. Who's more likely to win the scoring title, Kevin Durant or LeBron? LeBron. I think I'm with you there. I might I might even have LeBron as my most likely choice here. That's an issue, but I think it's better than a I would say it's better than a twenty percent. You said twenty five percent. I said twenty five to thirty. I think it's better than a 20% chance that he wins a scoring title, yep. which is, I don't know that I would have ever thought to have predicted that at the beginning of the season. The, the stat that he is the only player in NBA history who has a 50 point game before 21 and after 36. Ridiculous. This is also only the fourth time in his career that he has averaged 29 or more points per game. And it's happening at 
age fucking die. I look, I know threes are like a I think there's a conversation to be had about how impactful his numbers have been this year. Oh, I, so you're saying the Lakers have been in so many like meaningless games. Does it actually matter? Yeah, I, I think like, you know, that's one of the common criticisms of James is that he has chased some of these stats like in, in meaningless situations and games that are already won. He stayed in longer than some players would. I think there's some validity to that this year. Like the Lakers obviously are just, even more of a fiasco than they already are. If he's not putting up his numbers, but like the defense hasn't been great this year. You've seen the videos of him just like not even participating. And, you know, a lot of these big performances have come in games that were pretty hopeless from the start. That's not to say like, that LeBron doesn't even deserve to be like on the back end of an MVP ballot, because by my definition, even despite the Lakers struggles, like he's done a lot to keep this team afloat. But I do think that there's, there's some validity to, the overall stat line, not necessarily being totally indicative of how he's actually played this year. Something that I do find incredible, and I looked it up while you were talking, is I don't think we're talking enough about how he is shooting 62.1% inside the arc this year. That is the second highest two-point conversion rate he has ever had as of right now. He just he doesn't make sense. He doesn't. And because it's like, I don't know, I will check this as I'm talking, but when you look at his game, there are people, I don't, I don't think anyone was actually calling him the washed king, but there are people that talk, he just doesn't look as explosive. And no, this isn't a version of LeBron that's just getting to the rim um, at an absurd rate. And then I look and 43% of his shots are coming at the, at the rim this season. That's, it's in a lower percentile than he's used to because his position is different this year. That is, it's higher than last season. It's not the highest of his career, but it's not like insignificant. Still, he's shooting all these turnarounds and fadeaways. So I looked, he is shooting on turnaround fadeaway jump shots specifically, 48.4%. And we're talking like a not insignificant number of total attempts here. He has over yeah, I mean, the skill level is just unreal. He's just, it it's just absolutely wild that we can say that. So he is shooting on turnaround fadeaway jump shots and I included the ones that were banked in. So not turnaround jump shots. He also needs to be fading away. NBA play type data breaks this down. He is shooting 30 of 62. That is that's fucking unreal. Ridiculous. And feels like a great place to end this podcast. Well, uh, not not quite yet because I, I do want to keep talking about this. Sorry. <laughs> I, I think like, you know, I, I'm thinking back to the conversation that we had. One of our more heated discussions you know, on the heels of, or maybe it was midway through the first round loss to the Suns last last postseason, where I said that it felt like the decline was coming because it didn't seem like he had that that next level where he could ascend and lift his team to victories. We no longer had that feeling of inevitability. And on the surface level, I think it looks like that was just fucking stupid at this point, but I'm, I still want to stand by that. And I'm curious how you feel because to me, like LeBron every year until this year, he's so good at not just getting his numbers, but doing so in a way that elevates whoever's around him. And he's had a lot of garbage lineups around him over the years. I, I'm not seeing that this year. So like he's getting to the rim Frequently, he's finishing around the rim frequently. And I wonder how much of that is because there's no longer a need 
to devote quite as much defensive attention to him. And as a result of that, he's not really elevating those around him like we've typically come to see. And that's what's typically made his teams so good. The numbers here, you know, the net rating swing, as as valid as that can be and as invalid as it can be in certain situations, and it's all sorts of wonky because the Lakers have had such a topsy-turvy season and have so little depth, but plus 1.7 net rating swing this year, it's the worst mark of his career. And it's coming on the heels of plus 10.6 last year, plus 9.9 the year before that. So I, I feel like even if he could win the scoring title, if he could put these jaw-dropping per-game statistics together, I have that same feeling that I had in the playoffs last year where as good as he is individually, there's still not that feeling of inevitability that we came to associate with him during his ridiculously extended prime. Not trying to hate here. Like what he's doing is ridiculous and he's trying to make the most of a bad situation. It just doesn't feel the same way that LeBron's dominance has felt in years past. I think that's fair. There's also the Lakers status quo is working from like just a horrific baseline. And I'm wondering how that impacts it. I guess having Anthony Davis as your second best player, he's had worse teams then in a nutshell. Anthony Davis hasn't been available. And when you start to look at the lineups, his most used lineups, and even if let's just assume that Russell Westbrook has been detrimental to this team, which is fair, the most used lineup, that the Lakers have played with LeBron and no Westbrook is Malik Monk, Austin Reeves, Talon Horton Tucker, and Carmelo Anthony. So, so why isn't why isn't that swing larger? I'm saying because that lineup, he's not going to uplift. If the Lakers are bad on a baseline and then they're just getting worse. Oh, you're there, saying that's the most frequent he's played with? Yes. Okay, got it. So, and that oh, yeah, he, is, he he doesn't have much to work with. That that is indisputable. But it's also I'm not I I think you're right overall though because it's I'm not going to sit here and say if LeBron was how many years younger would he would this team have a better record? It, it probably would. I don't know. I haven't dug into this or thought about this. I don't know where this ranks on the scale of like the worst supporting cast that he's had, and it's muddied just by the fact that Anthony Davis exists. And I know he hasn't been super healthy, but he's played. And yep. what 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 is he at? Twenty something games. How many games has Anthony Davis played in this season? I just have no idea. Like negative three. So I I don't know where where it honestly ranks, but I don't I don't view him as responsible though. But this definitely is not definitely not thirty. I'm not I'm not trying to blame Anthony LeBron. Played thirty seven games. That is that is wow. I'm shocked it's that high. I'll also say the Lakers have lost the minutes this season that he and Anthony Davis played without Russell Westbrook. I believe. Let me see. Double checking. Yes, they're minus four point eight per hundred possessions. So, see, I just, I, I think if you went back and you found some of the lineup data, even on like Lakers teams from two years ago, that there are similar lineups that he's floated to a lot more success than he has with the makeshift ones they've used this year. I just, there's been more of who's the second best player on this team yeah. in lineups with LeBron, and who's the second best player in this lineup with lineups with LeBron than we've ever had during his Lakers tenure. Whether it was the year that he was there, like when you had Ingram, Kuzma was there for a while. You've Lonzo, whatever. Then you've had Davis. This season, it's like, oh, he's playing in lineups with Trevor Ariza. Like Malik Monk might be a valid answer to that some nights. Who is the Lakers? Who has been the Lakers third best player this season? The final buzzer? 
<laughs> Probably. Is That's it? a great question. I'm not even. Is it Malik Monk? Is it is it Carmelo Anthony? I think it's Carmelo Anthony. I'm. I'm. On, this is an honest question because I don't know the answer to it. I don't have a strong opinion. I think the answers. I assume we're saying Anthony Davis is the second best player availability and all. I think it's either mellow Malik Monk or Dwight Howard. It can't be Dwight Howard. I just, they, Are you sure? they don't even want to play Dwight Howard anymore because LeBron, yeah, because we should better. definitely base our, our evaluations on their decision-making. It's fair enough that look, the Rambi, that would be the plural of Rambus, right? It is Rambi. The, the Rambi. Yeah wanted to play Dwight Howard and DeAndre Jordan together. So we're never going to know how good this Lakers team could have been because we never saw what the Rambi wanted. Is so, Austin Reeves a valid answer? <laughs> by end of the season, he might be. It, and it hasn't been rushed. Let's just make that clear. That wasn't a joke, by the way. And if you want to even make it value, because can you say, is it, has Anthony Davis been the second most valuable player to the Lakers yes. in 37 games? I'd yeah. probably say yes. Yeah. And look, even if you want to say it's been Russ, it hasn't been Russ. It has not been you, Russ. You start to run into pecking order questions with this team very quickly. It's it's Malik Monk or Mello, I think. Though. Let's see. Win shares. LeBron, 6.6. Davis, 4.6. Mello, 3.5. Monk, 2.8. Dwight Howard, 2.4. Austin Reeves, 1.8. DeAndre Jordan, 1.4. Russ and Stanley Johnson, 1.2. Well, now we have to end the podcast on a sad note. I was going to end it on a high note, but you had to keep going. If you've made it this far, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Join our Discord. Link is in the podcast description. Subscribe to us on YouTube. Follow us on Twitter at Hardwood Knox. Follow us on Instagram at Hardwood underscore Knox. Follow all of our personal accounts. Those are in the podcast descriptions as well. Follow SportsMath on Twitter at SportsMathNet, spelled exactly as it sounds. Until next time, we'll leave the shout out to one, the only, should be playing more in the dunker spot, Frank Hill Keenan.